0: I am John, I'm one of the pastors here, and it really is a joy to have you with us today. Um, This morning, I wanna talk about something that I think most of you can relate to, or at least, you know, you've thought about relating to, and that is the gym. The gym, right, getting in shape, being buff, looking hot, whatever you wanna call it. Anybody else ever have this where you decide one day you're just gonna commit to going to the gym? You ever think about it? I mean, maybe you don't actually commit to it, but you think about it, and... um, you think about it, or and then sometimes that actually moves to you making a commitment and you go to the gym, and so for a few days, a few weeks, a few months, you start going to the gym and things work out quite well, right? You start losing weight, you're a little stronger, you sleep better, you're just all around feeling better. I notice that when I do this, when I go to the gym a little more regularly, I'm just healthier, like the decisions I make, the things I eat, I don't sit on the couch as much and I don't have as much candy. I still have it because I justify it because I go to the gym, but I don't have as much, right? You make wise decisions when you go to the gym and then for whatever reason, you're feeling good and then something shifts, right? You notice that for whatever reason, you're not losing weight as fast as you would like to or your muscles aren't getting as big as you think they should. Come on guys, muscles aren't as big as you want. You know every guy in the room can relate to that one come on. Um, or let's just say life happens. Life happens and you're going through life and then you go on vacation and you have to skip a day and you skip the next day and you skip three, four, five, six years and you're looking at it <laughs> and then you think about going back to the gym and you're like, no, nah, it's too much work and you get discouraged. There's something about us as humans. It's in our nature where if we don't see progress... If we don't see results, right, we just get discouraged and give up. None of us believe that when it comes to health, it's something that's gonna happen overnight. Nobody actually thinks that, right? Nobody thinks, oh, I'm gonna go to the gym one day and the next day I'm gonna wake up ripped. Nobody actually thinks that. Everybody understands that being in shape, being healthy, growing muscles, that's a process, right? And so the people that stick with it, the people that go to the gym regularly, the people that, actually experience the benefits of a healthy lifestyle, they're people that have the big picture perspective, right? They're people that understand being healthy is a process. It's not something that happens overnight, and that's why they stick with it. Well, the reason I bring this up is because in our passage today, we're going to look at Jesus, Jesus is going to share a couple things about the kingdom, and his point about the kingdom is pretty much the same thing. When it comes to the kingdom, we need a big picture perspective. We need to understand that the power of the kingdom isn't something that's going to happen overnight. It doesn't overwhelm the world. But the power of the kingdom is something that comes in time. It grows and transforms the world from within. But it doesn't happen overnight. And the way he tells us this is he uses two very simple parables. Parables. Very simple parables. One is about a mustard seed, and the other is about some yeast. About some yeast. And what he tells us is the kingdom doesn't come overnight, but rather the kingdom is like a mustard seed in that it germinates over time to become a gigantic tree, and it's like some yeast that over time is going to be mixed into a gigantic batch of dough. And what it says is the effects of the kingdom, the effects of the mustard seed, like the effects of the yeast, aren't always dramatic. They're not instant. You don't just plant a seed and then, boom, there's a gigantic tree the next day. It takes time. In the same way, it takes time kneading the yeast into the dough. But over time, what we see, and this is Jesus' point, is what we see with the kingdom is that over time, the kingdom is revolutionary. The kingdom's power is life-altering, and the world is changed because of it. That's going to be his point. And so this morning, what I want to do is very simple. I want to look at that parable together. But as you're going to notice, you have probably noticed on there, it's a super short parable. I mean, we're talking like three verses. This is like the shortest section of Scripture that we've looked at in years. It's a very short, very compact sermon or, or message And his point is very significant. But what I want to do most of all today is I want to use this discussion about the kingdom to launch or springboard into a broader discussion about what the kingdom is. What the kingdom is. We've been talking about the kingdom for two or three weeks here in different parables. And we've talked a little bit about what the kingdom is like. But we've never actually said this is what the kingdom is. And if you think about it, the kingdom is clearly Jesus' favorite topic. In scripture. It is hands down his favorite. And the reason I say this is if you compare this to any other topic in Scripture, he, it doesn't compare to what he talks about in terms of the kingdom. He talks about the kingdom 99 times. 99 times in the Gospels. Everywhere he went, it says he taught on the kingdom. And yet, even though he teaches about the kingdom constantly, most of us still find the concept of the kingdom elusive. It's hard to nail down. It's hard to understand. We're not sure exactly what it means. So I want to talk about that this morning. But first, I want to look at, as I said, I want to look at these parables. And so if I invite you to open up with me to Matthew 13. Matthew 13, verses 31 to 33. Matthew 13, verses 31 to 33. Forgot my notes. (laughs) Matthew 13, 31 33. As we read again, we're going to make, Jesus is going to make a very simple point. The kingdom is not something that happens overnight. The kingdom did not come to overwhelm the world. But the power of the kingdom is revolutionary, is life-altering, is world-changing. And from there, we'll launch into a broader discussion about what the kingdom is. All right? He told them another parable. He said, "'The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, "'a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his field. "'Though it is the smallest of all the seeds, "'when it grows, it is among the largest of the garden plants, "'in that it becomes a tree.'" It's a tree so large that the birds come and perch in its branches. That is what the kingdom is like. And then he told them another parable. He said, the kingdom is also like some yeast. Yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour, a massive amount of flour, until it was worked all the way through the dough. This is the word of the Lord. I mean, I don't know if it's you or me, but I I mean, it just seems like It kind of ends short his simple principle right it's very short and simple and to the point and that's it he doesn't take much clarification in it so if we look at it though we can kind of break down what he's getting at very quickly he points to two seemingly small and unimpressive elements He points to a mustard seed and some yeast Easiest way to describe a mustard seed, I think, is remember when you go to the beach and you like put your hands in the sand and you're digging around and then those black flecks kind of stick to your hand? They're like really tiny. That's about the size of a mustard seed. I didn't get out like my measuring utensil to measure the size of a mustard seed versus that, but that's about that size based on a Google image. And then yeast, yeast, if you've ever gone and bought this dry active yeast, they're like, they're like the size of sand, Okay? They're little tiny things that you wouldn't think can do much. But Jesus' point is, even though they're small, even though they're unimpressive at first, they grow to have a phenomenal impact on the world around them. That little tiny fleck of a seed grows into a gigantic tree that birds are able to perch on. And that little amount of um, yeast is mixed into a massive amount of dough, and it transforms it. From within. And if you're wondering, well, how much is 60 pounds of dough? Because, you know, you're curious and nerdy like me. I looked it up. It's enough for 120 pizzas. So let's just get practical. Jesus says a little amount of yeast mixed into a massive amount of dough can make 120 pizzas. That's a lot of dough. And his point is very simple. Again, things that are unimpressive and small at first have the potential to have a phenomenal impact. They are destined to do something great. And he says, that is what the kingdom is like. The kingdom looks small. The kingdom looks unimpressive. But it's destined to be something great. And so, that's, and if you think about it, isn't that how the kingdom kind of started? I mean, just think about this part. How did Jesus' own ministry start? Some guy out of Nazareth, and I know we're not familiar with like, that kind of geography, but the easiest way of thinking about Nazareth is you head out towards Bakersfield. <laughs> and then you go right for about 30 miles. Well, no, that takes you to Isabel. You go left, and then you're in the middle of nowhere. That's Nazareth, okay? That place that you just drive through, that's Nazareth. It's middle of nowheresville. Nobody even knows it's on the map that's where Nazareth is. And this one guy comes out of that place and he gathers together 12 other guys. And he lives with them, he loves them like brothers, he teaches them for three years. For three years he invests in them and he empowers them and then he dies. But he raises from the dead and then he ascends back to the Father and he empowers those 12 guys to go out and do ministry, continue the work that he's doing. The kingdom starts out so small and unimpressive, but as that story teaches us and as every scholar agrees, from that little moment, from that one man, the world has never been the same since. Jesus came to revolutionize the world, to alter lives and to change the world as we know it his kingdom is at work and we see it in our lives we see that in this church and we see that in the world at large many of you can point to ways that God has worked in your life where you've experienced the grace of God where you've experienced the freedom that God has to offer maybe you've been set free from an addiction or healed from something in the past you can point to the work of God in your life many of you can do this you could say, this is how I have seen God at work in my life. And some of you are even broader, and you're, you're bigger-minded bigger in terms of history. And you know that things like hospitals and orphanages and things like that, those were started by many Christians because they believed that God wanted to do something in the world. And so they followed the heart of the king, and they started doing the work of the kingdom. And the kingdom has been ever-expanding ever since. The world has been changed Lives have been altered. The kingdom's power is revolutionary. The kingdom is present. It is at work. We can attest to it in our own lives. And yet at the same time as we read the scriptures, right, and we read about the fact that there will be no more war, there will be no more death, there will be no more heartache, we turn on CNN and we're like, yeah, that's not happening right now. We know there's kind of this weird middle ground that we live in. Right? Where God is active, but God is still not fully present. We recognize this. Scholars refer to this as the inaugurated eschatological period of human existence. Nobody cares what scholars have to say on that one. The easiest way of thinking about it is the kingdom is present now, but it's also not yet present fully. The kingdom is at work. God is at work. His kingdom work is happening today, but it hasn't reached its fullest potential. It's like the mustard seed. It's growing. It's like the yeast. It's transforming the world around it. It's not in its fullest peak, or peak yet. But before we go deeper into that, let's ask the simple question, what is the kingdom? What is it? What is he talking about? And do you realize that in the 99 times that Jesus talks about what the kingdom is, he never actually says, this is what the kingdom is. He says often, this is what the kingdom is like, and he refers to the kingdom and what it's going to be like to experience the kingdom, but he never sits down and says, okay, children, let me explain to you, this is what I mean when I talk about the kingdom of God. He never does. He never sits down and explains it, and he never needed to. This is kind of the disconnect for us, but his audience knew full well what the kingdom was because it would be like me taking 20 minutes in a sermon to explain to you what America is like. Of course you know what America is like, right? You were raised in America. You've talked about American values at the dinner table. In school by people like Dave Galley, you were taught American history. Right? We've all had history classes. We've known about America. It's not something that we're unfamiliar with. It would be a complete waste of time for me to spend 20 minutes talking to you about America. And the same thing is true for Jesus. Jesus' audience knew full well what America was. Nope. What Jews, nope. What the kingdom of God was. That's it. (laughs) Just took a few times there. They knew full well what the kingdom of God was. Because for the Jews, the way they understood life, the way they understood their um, country, the way they understood scripture was all through the lens of the kingdom of God. Everything was through the lens of the kingdom of God. When we read scriptures, we don't do it that way. When we read the scripture, we don't view it as God is king and he's dictating things to his subjects. We often don't. We like to refer to God as father, but we don't think of God as king. Yes, both the elements of father is there, but also in the dominant theme of, of the scriptures is God is king. And we see this going all the way back to Genesis and carrying all the way through the prophets. And so this morning, I wanna do a very brief overview of the Old Testament and just show you what it reveals to us about God the King and how we kind of fit in that. Because if we're going to understand what the kingdom is like, we first need to understand what the kingdom is or at least how it's laid out in Scripture. When I was in school, one of the last classes that I had to do was an in-depth look at Genesis chapter 1 through Genesis chapter 12. And if you're familiar with it, that's the creation of the world all the way to the call of Abraham. And I didn't realize this at first, but that section is loaded with kingship imagery. From verse one. And so, Captain, will you throw up just the first couple verses of Genesis? Look at this with me. And you may miss this, but that's okay. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. That first verse, God created the heavens and the earth. That's a shorthand way of saying God created everything that ever was, everything that ever is, and everything that ever will be. Things on heaven, things on earth. That's the way of saying everything. God created the totality of creation. Anything that you can think of, God has already created that. God gave birth to that. And so what the idea is, is the person that initiates this relationship, the person that births this stuff, is clearly has power over it in some capacity but it goes further than that. We miss this more often than not in our readings of it. We skip over verse two, but the world that is depicted is not just a good world just as God created. In the world that is depicted, even in Genesis chapter two, we kind of have a child's nightmare. And let me explain. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and there were deep waters all around. That's kind of a child's nightmare, right? There's this scary stuff that exists in the world, but look where God is. God was hovering over it. All aspects of creation, one, God created, but two, God is over all aspects of creation. Nothing is outside of his power. Everything is in submission to him, and the way he proves it is in the next verse, because what he does is he just begins to speak, and creation responds instantly. There's no objection. They they acknowledge, God speaks, I listen. Captain, throw the next one up, please. The next verse is this. Then God spoke. He said, let there be light. And what happened? There was light. Creation just listens to its master. The king speaks, creation jumps, right? And on the way up, it asks, how high do you want me to go? Creation responds to the voice of the master. And then again, something we miss in this, but another sign of God's kingship comes in the next couple verses where God actually names aspects of creation. In ancient cultures, to name something meant that you had power and authority over it. It was a sign of your control. If you gave a name, so even think about the story of Daniel. When Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego go to um, uh, Babylon, the first thing the king does is he strips them of their old name and gives them a new name. It's indicative of his power over them. The king is in control. God is in control of creation. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. He begins to name aspects of creation. All of this teaches us, as we read through Genesis 1, the point is this. All of creation, even the scariest, most unknown, chaotic aspects, are all under the control of God. And at the very whisper of his voice, creation responds. All of creation is subject to God. Nothing, nothing is outside of his power. Everything is under him. The picture we have is God reigning over everything And then there's, you know, stuff here. Nothing is outside of his purview. That is the picture of God. That is the picture of this sovereign king in complete control over his kingdom. And then in chapter two, the kingdom kind of shifts a little. God does something that I think is crazy. He actually hands over a part of his kingdom to man, to Adam. Right, at the end of Genesis 1, we're told that God gave man control over aspects of his world. He said, you are to rule and subdue the earth. You are to rule over the birds of the air and the fish of the sea and the animals. He gives man some sense of control. He tells Adam, you are my second in command. You're my viceroy, my governor, if you will. You have a scope of control. And Adam has that. And from that point forward, Adam is is left to kind of control under the kingship of god and the way again how do we know that adam is in control of kingship what does god tell adam to do name the animals name the animals we think of that as a fun little kid's story no the point is way more significant than that god has given adam control and the way he demonstrates that control is by naming animals this was god's plan from the beginning God's plan from the beginning, God's idea of the kingdom is that he is the ultimate king. He is the true king. And then Adam responds to the king by honoring and obeying him. Adam responds to the king by honoring and obeying him. He does what the king asks. So the king says, rule over the birds of the air, name them. And so he does it, and he honors him, and he glorifies the Lord. He talks about what God, what God has done in his life, and things are good. And that's the picture in Genesis 1 and 2 of how things were supposed to be. But then man messes up everything, right? Adam and Eve botch it. They begin to doubt the goodness of God. They begin to doubt, why should God be the only sovereign one? God has something he's withholding. This is what Satan tempts them with. God knows if you eat of that tree, you will be just like him. That's the temptation. They want God-like power. They want God-like knowledge. They do not want to be under the king. They want to be the king and queen of their own lives. And so they rebel. They eat the fruit. They do what they're not supposed to. They disobey the king. They sin. And that's really what sin is. Sin is just that. It's disobeying God. Sin is doing what you and I were never designed to do. Sin is not some fancy church word that doesn't have meaning. Sin is very simply put any time we have disobeyed God and done what we're not supposed to do. We've gone against our wiring. And from the moment that Adam and Eve did that, from that moment forward, the enemy came and set up shop in God's kingdom. The enemy came and set up shop. And this is what we saw last week. And from that moment forward, you have people that are sort of for the king, but more people are against the king. And that's kind of how creation rolls from that point forward. But in Genesis 12, God takes another active role. He goes to Abraham and he says, you know what, we're gonna do something a little different. You're gonna be my people. I'm gonna make a kingdom within my kingdom. And you, if the enemy's setting up shop here, I'm gonna set up shop right next to him in my kingdom and we're gonna do something about this. And he tells Abraham, you, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Through you, everyone will come to know about the true king. You will be my people. I will be your God. I will be your king. I will protect you. I will bless you. I will honor you. I will take care of you. I'm your king. And Abraham says, that sounds good. That sounds good. And so Abraham honors the king and he obeys the king. He trusts that God is good. And so what we have from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to the children of Jacob, all the way down is you have this, again, restored garden where God is the sovereign king and then there's, you know, them ruling underneath his authority. And all they're seeking to do is honor and obey him. Unfortunately, if you're familiar with your Bible, that only lasts till the book of Samuel. Right? Because in Samuel, the big problem is the people don't like having God as their king anymore. What is their request? We want a human king. We want to be like everybody else. We're tired of having God as our king. Again, they're trying to usurp the role from God all over again. They're doing the exact same thing Adam and Eve did. We don't like being under you. We want to be like you. We want to be in charge of ourselves. We want to make our own decisions. We know how to live our lives better than you, God. You don't know what you're doing, so they're usurping him. So God says, fine, I'll let you have your kings. And so you have what? You have good kings, right? You have some You have David, Solomon, Hezekiah, to name a few. And for the most part, what makes them good kings is that they recognize their role. They recognize God is the true king, and they submit to him. They honor and they obey him. But for the most part, you have terrible kings. You have terrible kings, kings that want nothing to do with God, that continually insist that their ways are best, and they reject the king. And this is the tension you have. And so, in the midst of this, and this is really the bulk of the Old Testament, are these rebellions of the kings, is you have God sending messengers, prophets, again and again. And the goal of the prophets is very simple they have a very similar message, every single book. Their message is this turn back to the king. Turn back to the king, receive his grace, and follow him. Stop pretending you have your life together. Turn back to the king, receive his grace, and submit to him, honor him, obey him, trust that he is good, trust that he knows best for your life, and stop thinking you can run your own life. And then, in the midst of that, they also promise a time when God the king will return. And when the king returns, he promises that he will make all things right. And when he returns in making all things right, he will finally eliminate the evil one. He will eliminate the enemy in his kingdom. And all those who were pro-god, those who were for the king will be honored and lifted up and elevated, and those who were against or opposed to the king, they'll be kicked out of the kingdom for treason. That's the message of the Old Testament. Through the lens of the kingdom, that makes a lot of sense. We don't always read it that way, but that is evidence, as I said, from Genesis 1 all the way through the prophets. That's what the kingdom is. And so when Jesus shows up and he declares, the kingdom is here, the kingdom is now, he is essentially saying the king is here. I am the king. Return to me. I am going to make all things right Turn and follow me. Receive my grace and obey me. I am making all things new. My kingdom is beginning. I'm coming in with my armies. I'm beginning to work. And this is the thing. He says this is what the prophets and the righteous people of old have longed for. If you've been with us the last couple weeks, we've been talking about kingdom parables. Kingdom parables, where Jesus is trying to explain what the kingdom is like, and I hope with this perspective in mind, those parables are making a little more sense. If you remember, the first parable we looked at was the parable of the sower, where God says a farmer goes out and he's throwing his seed, and the seed lands on four different types of soil. There's the hard soil, the rocky soil, the thorny soil, and the good soil. And we're told in that that the seed represents the message of the kingdom. The seed represents Jesus declaring, The king has returned. I am here. Turn back to me. Receive my grace and obey me. That is the message of the kingdom. The king is here. Turn to me. Receive my grace and obey me. Follow me. Trust that I am good And as the seed is received by four different types of soil, Jesus says his message is received in four different ways. Some people just outright reject it. They go, don't want anything to do with that. Totally deflects off of them. Other people sort of get it. Sort of get it. That's where the rocky and thorny soil comes is they kind of understand it. At most, we would say they acknowledge God as king, but they're not really submitting to it. Great, you acknowledge the king, but if you're not really living under his authority, he's not really having his way with you. But he says, then there's the good soil. There's those who both acknowledge God as king and those who submit to him. And the good soil, it says, produces a crop 30, 60, 90, 100 times what was planted. In other words, their lives flourish Their lives flourish because they're doing what they were supposed to do. And then last week, we looked at the parable of the weeds, sort of. I kind of botched it in this service, but we sort of got through it. And the parable of the weeds was this, where a farmer goes and plants good seed in his garden, but overnight, an enemy comes and sets up shop and plants evil in the midst of the garden. What that parable is about is Jesus is saying, the king is here, I'm coming, I'm on the scene, I know what I'm doing, and yes, I'm at work in the garden, but no, I'm not just gonna go in and start ripping up the bad stuff because you don't understand. If I start ripping up the bad right now, if I start ripping up the bad today, I'm gonna do more harm than good. But he promises there is a moment in the future, there is a moment marked on God's calendar where he promises to act and he promises to make all things right. There is a moment, and the Jesus says, that's what the kingdom is like. And then again this morning, the kingdom didn't come to overwhelm the world overnight. The kingdom's power is dramatic, yes, but it's also slow. It works over time. But as the kingdom comes, it is revolutionary. It is life-altering. It is world-changing, And that's what we experience. And so in essence, what Jesus is getting at, what we need to understand the kingdom is, is this. The kingdom is not a location. The kingdom is a reality. The kingdom is a reality. The kingdom is anywhere God is acknowledged and submitted to as king. The kingdom is anywhere where God's appointed king, Jesus Christ himself, is reigning in and through the lives of people on earth as it is in heaven. That is what the kingdom is all about. The kingdom is not, being a Christian is not about thinking you have to somehow have life altogether. The kingdom or being a Christian is not about pretending you're better than everybody else. That's not it at all. The kingdom is about an allegiance, an allegiance to the true king. The kingdom is about admitting, again, that we are not the kings and queens of our lives, admitting we don't know best. I don't know how to run my marriage. I don't know how to parent my kids. I don't know how to do my job the best. It's about admitting that and saying, Lord, I kind of have been doing this on my own for a very long time, but I admit I can't do this on my own. I hand it over to you. And in handing it over, the kingdom is about receiving the grace of God. Him speaking to you saying, I know you've messed up. It's so cute how you tried. And I forgive you. I love you. I died for you. And then out of that, The kingdom living is about trusting God is good, that he knows best, and following him, submitting to him, trusting him above trusting something else. That's what the kingdom is all about. Many of you know this, right? We've talked about this. There are so many of you who have submitted to Christ as king Many of you can point to the ways in your own life you see God at work. You've experienced the grace, the freedom, the forgiveness of Christ. You can point to that. Many of you can point to addictions that you've been set free from, or healing that has occurred from your past, whether it's psychological, spiritual, emotional, physical. You can point and you can go, I didn't do that. That was to the glory of God. God did that. You can point to those broken areas where you have received the grace of God, where you turned back to Him, and you can talk about what it means to honor Him, what it means to be His child, and live out of that identity. And so you talk about this is how I follow God and you admit honestly and openly you don't do it very well nobody does Christianity well that's ridiculous what doing Christianity is all about is just simply admitting yeah I got nothing but God told me to live so I'm gonna live I'm gonna obey him to the best of my ability I live out of that grace the king said move so I'm moving the king said love so I love All of us have stories, and so the way we honor and obey the king is we listen to his word. We obey him by opening his word and saying, okay, Lord, what do you have to teach me today? And so when he says, John, you need to go out and love your enemy, I go, I don't want to do that. (laughs) But I do it because, you know what, I'm going to honor and obey the king. The king said to. I don't want to be baptized. Well, the king said to. Whatever your thing is, the king said it. You don't really have a say in the matter. It's submitting to the king. I don't want to do that in my marriage. I don't want to do that for my kid. I don't want to do that in my work. I don't care. The king said, that's what you do. And so to the best of my ability, the best of my ability, I try and honor the king that way by obeying him. But the other way we obey the king, and this is really crucial, is you talk about what the king is doing in your life. It's so easy to just get caught up in asking the king for things. It's so easy getting caught up in just listening to the king and acting out of that. But we need to realize the king is at work in our lives. The king is doing something. The king has been there in different ways in each of your lives. All of you who are Christians can point to this. In some way, you've seen the power of the king. So your job in honoring him is sharing about it. Your job in honoring the king is just openly and honestly talking about how the king has worked in your life. That's all evangelism is. Evangelism is not about coming up with some creative argument about how to win your friend of faith. That's ridiculous. It's not about slamming your religion down another person's throat. That's stupid. Evangelism is just about witnessing. This is what God has done in my life. This is how I've seen the king act, and I'm giving glory to him. When you talk to me at work, and you see me doing a certain thing, and I don't get ruffled with my feathers, I do, but I'm just saying, if you're a person that doesn't get your feathers ruffled at work anymore, when people talk about you behind your back, and somebody goes, how can you do that? You just go, you know what? God has forgiven me so much. (laughs) What do I have to be upset about this guy? That's giving glory to God. You're not shoving your religion down another person's throat. You're just living honestly and openly. And so if I'm living honestly and openly before you, I think one of the ways that I have experienced the king, the power of the king in my life, is by him, especially through receiving his grace, is by him continually reminding me that I don't have to be a certain way for him to love me. I am a person that is crippled by guilt. I'm just ravaged by it. Guilt just sticks with me. It, I have a hard time shaking it. I have a very hard time. Things that I have done, things that I forgot to do, things that I'm doing, whatever it is, Satan just constantly on my ear whispering, you're not good enough, you're terrible. How can you do that? You can't be a pastor, you can't be a Christian. What makes you think you can do that? And this voice is just constantly there. That's just what I have. That's my burden. Everybody's got something else. But one of the ways that I have experienced the grace of the king is that when I take those guilt when I take those thoughts and those feelings and I lay them before the king, when I turn back to him and I allow him to speak his grace in my life, I allow him to say, John, I know you're a screw-up. It's so cute how you try. (laughs) I know you messed up, but I love you. I know you messed up. I forgive you. I know what you did was wrong, but I died for that. I allow his grace to speak into my life and then I obey his command because it's out of that place that he says now live. Go live, do not be crippled by your sin. Do not be crippled by your guilt. Don't just sit at home and think you can't do this job. And so every single day, every single day I get up and I come to my office and I try to be a pastor, not out of my power, not because I'm somehow good enough, but because of what God has spoken into my life. He has spoken grace into my life, and he has said, go and live and love and preach. And so I get up, and I live, and I try to love, and I try to preach to the very best of my ability because that's the, that's the grace God has poured into my life. That's how I've experienced him. And so that's how it happened. I turned back to him. I received his grace and I'm obeying him as he goes. I'm honoring and obeying the king. And for some of you in this room right now, that idea of being crippled by guilt is totally resonating with you. You're a person that is like me in that way. Some of you are like, yeah, that doesn't relate to me. That's okay. But I know there's other people who are like me because mine is common. Mine is common. If you're like me, I invite you to do the same thing I did. Instead of allowing that wedge to drive you away from God, admit the wedge and confess it to the king. He already knows anyways. And it's just laying before and then allowing him to speak words of grace to you. Allowing him to go, I know and I forgive you. I know and I love you. I know I died for that. Now live. Others of you have different messages. Others of you have different ways that you've experienced the grace of God in your life. Others of you can point to ways that you've experienced the work of the king. Ways that you've seen him transform your life. Ways you've seen him bring comfort in areas that you thought were uncomfortable. That's not the right word, but it fits. You've seen him. Your job, honor the king. Just talk about what the king has done. That's evangelism. Don't be afraid of it. You have the king on your side. There's also another group of you who've come year after year, month after month, week after week, or this is your first time. And you're a person that recognizes there's something wrong in the world, but you've never been able to put your finger on it. What the Bible tells us repeatedly over and over is the problem that is wrong with the world is that when we are not in submission to the true king, we're going against our wiring. We're not living as we were intended to live. The story of Genesis, the story of creation, depicts how we were supposed to live. God is the one that's in complete control. We're submitted to him. We're not the king of our life. We're not the queen of our own life. We're submitted to him. So if you're that person today that has been struggling that has been trying to figure out why is life just not working what is the issue here look we can address symptoms all day long oh you have an anger issue oh you have a lust problem that's not the issue your issue is you're not submitted to the king and so this morning i just invite you whether it's through communion or whether it's through a conversation with somebody else today will you pull somebody aside today and just say hey can you tell me a little bit more about this king and what it means to follow him, what it means to be in the kingdom, what it means to be a Christian. Again, we don't have perfect answers. We don't have perfect lives. But I can tell you how I follow the king and invite you to do the same. And if somebody asks you how to do that, be honest and vulnerable and open and do the same in your life. One last thing, though. I want to be clear on this. When you come to Christ... When you come to Christ and you commit your life to Christ, yes, you will experience some sort of change. Whether it's an understanding of forgiveness, some form of healing, some form of freedom from addiction or burden or whatever it is, yes, that happens. It's like when you start going to the gym, you start losing weight, you start feeling stronger, that kind of stuff. It happens. It does. But like going to the gym, when it comes to the kingdom, the results don't happen overnight you're not gonna be made perfect. The world isn't gonna be right overnight. You need a big picture perspective. You need to understand the process of the kingdom. You need to understand how the king works. The king didn't come to overwhelm the world overnight. The king comes slowly, patiently, methodically to revolutionize, to life alter, and to world change that's where we live we live in a state a weird middle ground of now and not yet the kingdom is growing like the mustard seed the kingdom is transforming the world like the yeast god is on the move but we do not yet live in a space where we admit the kingdom is in its fullness when that day comes and the lord promises that day will be very soon It's as we looked at last week. When that day comes, we will know there will be no more war. There will be no more death. There will be no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. The way we know life today, it won't exist when the kingdom comes. When the kingdom comes, all of that will be eradicated. The evil one will be kicked out. Those who are opposed to the king will be kicked out. The Lord will establish his kingdom and once again, like it was in Genesis, all of creation will be submitted to the king. All of creation will rightly honor and obey the king in all that it does. That is the day we long for. That is the day as Christians we point towards. That is the day we encourage each other with. It's coming. Amen? Let's pray out of what we've learned in the scriptures. Father, we give you glory and praise for you are our king. You are the sovereign one over creation. You are the one in control. And yet, Lord, we confess that we have often tried to usurp your authority. We, like Adam, like the people of Israel, have thought we know best. But Lord, we turn to you and we just ask that you would have your way with us. That your spirit would come and continue to transform our lives to be in conformity with yours. Lord, that you would just have your way in us. That our lives would seek to honor you as we seek to obey you. Lord, that you would be lifted up. If there are areas in our lives that are not submitted to you as king, Lord, may your spirit provoke those so that we can confess them and hand them over. That we may turn back to you and we may receive your grace and we may listen to you and obey in those areas lord we pray for our whole world as it is clearly not in submission to you as many are against you and many are turned against you lord we pray that you would break their hearts soften their hearts cause them to turn back to you Lord, may they see you are the only one that is good. May they, re- may they recognize the errors of their ways. May they recognize the way they are trying to be kings and queens of their own life and turn back to you to receive your grace. And in receiving your grace, may you speak words of wisdom on how we are to live. Lord, we pray for our world as there is so much brokenness when we live apart from you. There is so much hurt and so much pain because we try and do things our own way. Lord, come. Come and have your way. Lord, may the whole world tomorrow learn to honor and obey you. Lord, may we be ambassadors of your kingdom this week, seeking to share the hope that we have. May we be ambassadors of your goodness, and may we honor you at work in our families, with our kids, with our neighbors, wherever it is that you have called us to go, and may we seek to obey you to the best of our abilities, knowing that you are continuing to speak grace into our lives. Lord, out of that understanding, we give you ultimate praise and ultimate glory, and we hand this all over in the name of our King, Jesus Christ himself. Amen.